Well, hello, and uh, welcome to another exciting edition of Pep Talk, the persuasive evangelism podcast. I am Andy Bannister from Solas, and I'm joined as ever by my intrepid co-host, uh, Christy Bear uh, from Oak Hill College. Christy, how are you doing? Hello. Feeling very intrepid, as you can see. Boxes all around. How are you? I am doing pretty well. Yes, listeners can't see that Christy is surrounded by boxes. Her entire <laughs> life is in boxes. And for those of you who regularly follow the episodes, you'll be you're, you, last time you heard that she is moving, now she's in the process of moving, and before long she'll be in a palace or something. But we have talked to palaces. We have a guest who's got a link to palaces today, don't we, Christy? It's a, a sort of tangential link, but there is a link. Yeah, we do. Uh, today we're joined by Mark Green. Um, Andy, I think you were going to say a couple of things. Well, actually, we, yes, we, we planned beforehand that I was going to do the introduction. I passed it to Christy. This is a hundred episodes in, and we still can't get introductions right. We are joined by Mark Green today. Mark, you wear various hats. You worked in advertising for ten years, but we won't hold that against you. Uh, you, uh, you, uh, you. That's then, my joke. That, oh, there we go. I'm sure we think of others. We discovered in the, before the show began that you like dad jokes, yeah. like like I do. So we have a bit of Mad Men later on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then you led. You were also involved in leading um, London Bible College, where I was a I was a student. I came after you were there, so you know the, the bombshells were still falling. And um, and then more recently, been involved at LICC, London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And again, regular listeners to Pep Talk would know we've had Paul Woolley from there on the show. We've had uh, Tracy Cottrell, so you are, you're our third LICC person. So, so, so lots of hats. So maybe a great first question would be, tell us a bit about that journey. How have you journeyed from the world of advertising through theological education now to helping you know, think Christians think about what it means to live for Christ in the workplace? Is there a thread that links those things together? Oh, yes, I think there is. Although, you know, when you're in it, you don't necessarily see it as it's emerging. So... Um, I love working in advertising. I love the people. I love the creativity. Um, I love the pace. And, of course, the lunches were uh, were spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, but during that time, I was in America at the time, and I, I was being discipled. Who who knew that such a thing existed? Uh, uh, by this marvellous guy who was a lawyer. He was associated with the Navigators. And, um, you know, because I was in America and, you know, disconnected from, if you like, all my friendship groups in England – and so on, you know, you're encouraged to do this, that and the other. And where are you going to do it? You're going to have to do it in the workplace. And about uh, two or three years in, I was invited by my church to teach a, a, an adult Sunday school class. One of the great gifts of the American church is adult Sunday school, particularly if you come to faith, as I did rather later in life at 23. You've got some catching up to do. So um, I, they asked me to teach it on uh, workplace ministry, which was something I didn't know I was doing because I didn't know there was a category, because I didn't grow up Christian. And so I bought a book and realized I sort of was doing this, and I taught this thing. And the amazing thing about this Sunday school class, it wasn't a sort of young urban professional thing, although it was it was Manhattan, just a load of folk, really, was that after you know the first uh, three weeks, we had 10 minutes to share what was going on, what we were seeing going on in our workplace. After the third week, we had to cap it at 10 minutes of sharing because there were just so many stories. And I just realized that, you know, oh, my goodness, God can work through anyone in any place. When I came back to the UK to go to theological college because um, my disciple had turned me on to the word of God. I just wanted to learn more about the Bible. had no sense of any call to what you people normally call full-time uh, Christian ministry. I, I thought I was already in it, um, you know, to be to be a vicar, to be a minister, or to be an overseas minister, just wanted to get in the Word of God. When I came there, I suddenly realised virtually nobody thought the workplace was significant. Mm. 
I mean, there was the marvellous Richard Higginson, who who just written a book when I arrived called Call to Account. But it wasn't on any, it wasn't on the curriculum of any theological college, and it's not just that it wasn't on the curriculum as a as a topic. As one of my colleagues here once said, you know, work is not a topic to be preached; it is a context to disciple people for. You can have a fantastic theology of work, but actually not really know how to apply it where you are. A friend of mine looking at the boxes that I can see and no one else can was it was in a it was in delivery business. And uh, he has a comp- full, full understanding of why why people need packages and why it's a good thing to deliver them. He's got a theological frame for that. But the, the context was to- toxic, really difficult, badly run company, indifferent to employees and so on. That's what he's dealing with, the both and. Anyway, I came back and I saw no one was really doing this. And it hurt me, actually. I think when God puts and puts different things on different people's hearts, what it, why, why did it hurt me? Because I realised... What's going on, as one uh, woman once said to me, is some people die without knowing the ministry God has for them. So there are all these people going out into their everyday life not knowing that God is really with them, not knowing that God wants to work through them in a rich and holistic way, not only by sharing the gospel verbally, but by collaborating with him in his holistic mission of bringing shalom into the world, renewing everything. And it applies whether you're a housewife, it applies, well, it applied then whether you're a housewife, whether you're a you know, plumber, whether you're an electrician, or whether you're in, you know, you're an accountant or an ad man or whatever it might be. And this was such a diminishment of the call of God on people's lives. I mean, you know, the difference it makes when somebody knows that God is with them, you know, 24-7, is extraordinary, mm-hmm. absolutely extraordinary. And so that was it for me. I thought, well, I need to do something about this. Well, I couldn't really help it. Um, and um, yeah, and I suppose that the connection with advertising is twofold. The first connection is that that's where I learned that it's possible. It, two things are possible. One is anybody can be fruitful for God in everyday life, wherever they might be. And the second thing was I was in a church that were making disciples like this. So it's possible to have a church community that doesn't just recruit people for their own programs, marvellous as many of those are, and fantastic as all the things that pastors are doing in social action and communication is. It's possible to have a church like that. And then the third thing, I suppose, is the professional angle, which is what do you do in advertising? What you do in advertising is you try to help people see something afresh that they may be familiar with or not familiar with in a way that motivates them to some kind of action. So once upon a time, you know, stout or Guinness, if you like, as an example, was something that uh, older people drank as a laxative. And then pretty soon Ogilvy and Mather get hold of it and, get, you know, Dorothy Sayers originally gets hold of it and suddenly over time it becomes this cool drink. Mm. Or, you know, LucasAid, and, and you're both too young to remember this, but you, LucasAid used to be something that was given to sick children. That's how it was. You know, you, you buy this when one of your children is sick and they drink it. And, it, and it's turned into, you know, uh, a, an energy restorative, which is what it does for the fittest people on the face of the planet, whether virtual or real. Mm. So advertising helps people reframe things. And what we have here is a real need to reframe the gospel. Brilliant. That's wonderful, Mark. One of the things, I suppose, one lady who knew uh, that God was with her 24-7 is the topic of your your latest book, A Life of Grace, uh, a memoir of Queen Elizabeth II. 
Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about her and how she she saw God with her in the workplace and at home? Yeah, I think the first thing um, about this really is that, um, I, you know, just to, to be clear, I, I didn't get this idea f- um, from myself. I mean, I'm, God spoke to me about Queen Elizabeth in 2015 uh, very, very clearly. I was asking, Can you, Lord, could you show me somebody who is in the public sphere, in the public eye, who lives out this holistic discipleship that we're, we're looking at, you know, models godly character, does good work, creates the culture, stands up for justice, is a messenger of the gospel. And he said to me, the queen, and I didn't, I had one thing that was royal in my house, which was a glass paperweight from the Jubilee, silver Jubilee. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't a royal watcher. I, I, I you know, hadn't been a royal watcher. He said the queen. And I thought about it and did a bit of work and thought, oh, my goodness, God is right. Who knew? And I think that was the first clue that I began to, to research this and realised, yes, when you ask people about what is she like with, with people, it's full of grace and kindness and patience um, and self-restraint obviously politically in all kinds of other ways as well. Does she do good work? Absolutely, does she do good work? Everyone says that. First of all, she works very hard, but all the prime ministers have said, you know, she's been so helpful to me. Um, and, you know, has she does she mould a culture? Well, again, when you look at the Commonwealth, oh, my goodness, when one thinks about what she's done there, when she comes to the throne, there are eight nations in the Commonwealth, and they're all run, except for hers, by white men. The rest of the nations that come to be the Commonwealth, now 54, were all nations that we exploited. They were the empire. And in the period of her reign, she somehow manages to turn all those nations that we exploited and granted independence to from people who would have legitimate reasons to resent us and not to want to jump into sand pits with us and jump over, you know, uh, high jumps and all the things that the Commonwealth does or cooperate or medicine or anything else into a fellowship of friends. Of friends. It is the most extraordinary achievement. The daughter of the man who ruled a quarter of the world turned, as she put it at one point, uh, yeah. the crown from a, from a symbol in those nations of imperial domination to a channel for cooperative egalitarian friendship. That is moulding a culture. It's extraordinary achievement um, in that regard. It is. And one thing, one thing that I was struck by, Mark, I'd love to get your thoughts on this too. I was very struck by, in the days after the funeral, or sort of leading up to the funeral and then after the funeral, was the conversations that began for me with folks who have got, you know, marginal faith or no faith, you know, around the Queen. You know, I had friends who were not, particularly monarchists who made very positive remarks about somebody says use the phrase servant leadership which you know yeah. the opportunity to go interesting where you know where do you think that that came from and then i remember talking to another sort of skeptical friend around the fact that you know we take for granted that she you know her model of leadership is something to aspire to serving others you know you go back in history for most of human history whenever leaders have got their hands on power they've seen it as their job to just use that for their own for their own ends. Where did we get the idea that true true leadership should be servant-hearted? And we have to be very clear. I'm not putting her on a pedestal. She was a 
faulty human being like we all were, but they've actually aspired to that model of leadership. Well, obviously it came from Christ. And then I suddenly discovered having these evangelistic conversations out of the funeral, even watching the funeral with a, with a mixture of friends who were not all Christian. I just think it was an amazing opportunity. And okay, yes, the funeral was gone. And, you know, in time, we'll talk less about her. But right now, am I right in thinking there's a moment here for us in terms of conversations with friends around, you know, an event this big and this historic? And, of course, some of what you've written about the book. Um, well, yes, yes, I, I think there is. And I I mean, what is it in, in some ways extraordinary to me uh, around this? I think, by the way, just to comment on the moment, I think the moment is until um, around about four o'clock on Christmas Day, or maybe Boxing mm. Day. In other words, I think once Charles does the Christmas speech, I think I think up to that moment, I think people are still going to be thinking about the Queen, maybe till New Year. It will still be, you know, leadership transition is a moment of leadership comparison, <laughs> you know, that almost inevitably. So I think that will occur. But I've, I've had a very similar experience. Um, it, it has been quite surprising to me. I, I went to um, the barbers, you, those of you who can't, see this may be surprised by that but I, I went to the barber <laughs> and uh, actually it's a hairdresser there used to be a barber but it's now a hairdresser it's a, it's a salon I went to a salon and um, uh, it's a place sort of place where they wash your hair so they wash my hair and the person washed my hair is 19 years old young woman called Sophie and uh, this happened just just before the platinum actually and she said what have you been doing I said I've been writing a book about the queen oh she says she's 19 years old she's um, you know in a hairdressing context so she's not an up she isn't an upper middle class person she could be you can you know wash hair and be upper middle class but she's not and she's oh I love the queen I'm thinking really I'm, where, where did this come from oh I've always loved that and thinking about what party I can have and the next time I go I, so I give her a copy of something called The Servant Queen, which is the one the Queen wrote a forward for and sold a million copies. And um, when I go back next time, there's another young woman washing my hair. And she said, oh, I saw that book. It's fantastic. I wish my grandfather would love it. So this is a curious thing about the Queen, is that even if you yourself are not interested in it, you know somebody who is. And you're sort of interested because they're interested. And I found this, you know, I'm, you know, you this happens in what you might call cold contact situations, which is not where I like to focus talking about evangelism. I rather talk about ongoing relationships. But in cold situations, I'm on a train and I strategically leave a copy of the book, you know, on the table. And I get a sense from God that the people opposite me might be interested. So I say, are you at all interested in the Queen? And the woman looks at her husband and kind of raises her eyebrows and sort of, oh, is he interested in the Queen? Is he ever? And he just beams. And so we have this conversation about Queen, et cetera, et cetera. Extraordinary everywhere we go. And um, the professional evangelists like yourself, so Amy Ewing said exactly the same thing in, in a recent address I heard her speak, you know, that she's never had so many opportunities to talk to ordinary people about the gospel and because of the Queen. So I think it is that. I think it is because we admire service. Hmm. And in a way, you can see that, you know, when the Daily Mirror used to have their Ordinary Hero Awards. Um, there is something deep in us that really connects to the nobility of selfless sacrifice. You see it in Remembrance Day. Uh, you see it in the popularity of, of, of things like the Lord of the Rings as well. You know, historically, obviously, slightly you know, we'll see how this one pans out, rings of power. But you see that admiration for 
the Sam who is prepared to, he's not the hero, but Sam is prepared to go and give his all to help Frodo. And even Frodo, who hardly, you know, hardly picks up a sword, but he's prepared to carry this thing. He's prepared to serve the greater cause. I think it is, it is not surprising that it is deep in humanity, mm-hmm. uh, given that the creator God sent his son to serve and not be served. Mm-hmm. So I think it, mm-hmm. it triggers something in people. Mark, this is this is wonderful to hear, and I'm so thrilled to hear that you've had so many opportunities. Um, I've experienced similar as well, and I guess one of the things, maybe one of the last couple of questions, our time is quickly running out, sadly. How do you go about moving the conversation on from talking about um, the Queen to somebody to entering that hmm. um, that conversation around servant leadership and potentially Jesus? Like, is there a yeah, how do you go about progressing that conversation in a natural and, and easy way? Well, of course, uh, you know, as, as ever, it all depends on who you're talking to. So part of it, part of that discernment is to, I suppose, first of all, find out what 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 they particularly admire about the Queen. You know, what is it that they admire? And quite likely, one of those qualities is going to. She may well uh, have said something about how. Um, that quality is something that she got from her reading of the Bible. So it could be reconciliation and forgiveness, which was very, very high on her agenda. Um, And she's had a lot to say about that. And indeed, one of the reasons for this book is to equip people with with those connection points Mm. so that almost what what is it you love about the Queen? Oh, I love, you know, her her love of life. Isn't that interesting that she had all this work to do and that she loved loved life? And and she talks about, you know, because her God is a God who's created all these things and uh, and she sees it as a gift from her and she has perspective on her work. And, you know, she talks about she talks about taking the long view and giving her best for today and not not getting stuck on the past, if you like, the mistakes she's made. But moving on. So in almost any area, there's something that then connects to to the Bible or to 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 Jesus. And and for some people, the ground has shifted, if I may say this, just make this point in terms of the way the country had was asked to view the Queen before the Platinum Jubilee and after and at and after the Platinum Jubilee. So even in 19, um, even at her 90th birthday, 2016, the media, the most the media you would get, or indeed from almost all her biographers, was the Queen is a committed Christian. There was no exploration of it. Virtually no testimonial around it. You come to the Platinum, and the BBC had got hold of the servant queen and the king she served. The biographers, her own biographers, talked about that as the validation of it. And you had all these people coming on the BBC and the main funeral things and the main Platinum Jubilee things talking about her faith. So the difference now is that the faith connection has been made for us. You know, it's easy to say, so, but of course, you know, one of the interesting things about uh, the way the funeral was covered and the way the platinum celebration was done was so many people were talking about the Queen's faith. And yes, that was very important to her. And she did speak about it a lot. And, you know, I think this is where she got her strength from. So the frame is different than it was even a year ago, when a year ago I could write, you know, the media ignores this, essentially. They don't know what to do with it. Whereas they did something with it this time. Hmm. Can I ask a quick follow-up question, um, Mark, on that? Um, I've noticed, I wonder if this is a generational thing, 
I've noticed that with friends kind of similar to my age, like late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, many of them don't don't like the Queen very much. And um, I just wondered if you had any um, any kind of wisdom as to how to go about these conversations with them when it comes up, because the themes that come up for them are ones of like privilege, um, you know, the the privatisation of the monarchy, you know, the things that you mentioned earlier on about the role in um, the empire and seeing seeing the queen and others, basically just a very wealthy family who, yeah, they've worked hard, but why are we kind of, why is it that all radio stations took over um, announcing her death? You know, why is it that um, you can't go anywhere and, and not kind of see her face on a, on a um, bus, etc.? And so there's just a, quite a bit of, it's almost verging on hostility. And that's just been very, very prevalent um, for me with my friendship groups. And I just wondered if you had any wisdom on how to, how to talk about it with them. Well, I imagine you've got more wisdom since they're your friends. <laughs> <laughs> I, was blind I, think one, I think one of the things for me, um, there are a certain number of facts that I think help. Mm-hmm. So I think the notion, um, for example, to some extent, I may have addressed this um, adequately for you, but I think when you tell people a little bit about what she's done in the Commonwealth, when you say you see her as you know as a, as a relic of colonialism and imperialism, that's not the way the Commonwealth see her. That's not that's not the way those those populations see her. That's why there is a Commonwealth because they don't see her that way. So if one examines these things one by one, clearly um, she is privileged. But then you say to her, so let me tell you about her day. Let me tell you about her week. Let me tell you about some of the places that she has to go to in order to serve this country and to honour people that you do approve of and who are grateful usually for the honours. People who are running charities, people who uh, sacrifice their lives, people who generate wealth through business, all the honour system and all that kind of stuff, whether we like it, that system or not. So she stands there for hours or has stood there for hours, you know, saying hello to people she's never going to meet again and encouraging them. She goes to places that most of us would not choose to visit an awful lot. She gets on a train and she goes to Scunthorpe and she goes to the middle of nowhere. She goes to a factory. How many of us want to spend their time in a factory? And then she goes to a, a shipyard and then she does this and then she does that. And yes, it always smells of fresh paint. But actually, for the sake of encouraging all people of many different levels in society... Um, that's what she does. And in fact, it's been said, I mean, the Queen and the royal family spend far more time in what you might call um, with people who are in some way deprived or sick or more marginalised than most of us, unless you're a social worker. The ceremonial aspect is there, but Princess Anne visits seven prisons a year. I mean, the, the actual work here, and again, they're incredibly wealthy. Yes. And the real question is, what do they do with it? Look at what most people who are incredibly wealthy do with it. Well, most of what they do with it is they have a long holiday in Balmoral. <laughs> you know, you, you, you know, they used to have a boat. They don't have a boat anymore. You know, are they, are they buying extraordinary amounts of this, that and the other? Are they frittering it away? I don't think so. So part of this, I think, is a confident... You know, they've embraced their calling. And I think, in a sense, it's up to the government and the political process to decide whether we want to have a monarchy anymore. But while we have one, let us say, 
let us look at their life of service and and assess whether we think they are doing that well. Hmm. And essentially, in our interest, as it has been defined by the limits set around them by by the political process. Hmm. Well, we have hit the 25-minute mark. Mark, so thank you so much. We started from the world of advertising. You did a great plug for the monarchy. At, uh, at the end, the funny thing is, I would call myself a, a slightly reluctant monarchist, but I remember having a fascinating conversation with a friend the other day who's not particularly monarchist, and I just looked them in the eye and I went, "So, you say you would rather not have a monarchy? Does this mean you'd like more politicians?" <laughs> to which she looked at me and went, "Oh, yes, good point." <laughs> so, yeah. Mark, your yes. book, um, "A Life of Grace: Tribute to Queen Elizabeth II," is uh, available kind of fairly widely. We'll put a link in the show notes uh, to uh, to the book so people can find it themselves. But one thing I love about it, actually, I love the way it's priced. You can buy, you know, you can buy it in bulk quite cheaply. So, you know, you've talked about giving it as a gift to people. If that's attractive to you listening to this, if you've got the kind of friendship group who are into the Queen and whatnot, do encourage people, get hold of copies, give it away. So it look, one of the things I like about it, it looks good. It looks like a, a good gift. It's not done cheaply. There's something about, about, you know, gifts that have quality to them. And this certainly does. So Mark, thank you so much for your, your time. I know you're, you're a busy man. Uh, if not busy, just busy color coordinating your bookshelves for those who can't see the amazing science picture that Christian and I can see behind Mark, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. And uh, Christy and I will be back in two weeks' time with another guest, another topic, another episode of Pep Talk. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.